Amen. It is good to go away and uh, had a great time and it's good to be back and it's never long enough, um, but good to be back here. So I want to jump right back in to our, our text and um, I think it's worth noting and I'm so thankful for David and his, uh, David Wooten and his faithfulness and, and his preparation and that he, he does his homework. Uh, as I was listening to the sermon, he realized we did 70 messages. I didn't know we did 70 messages. I would have ran out of fingers a long time ago. Um, but he, he was surprised when I, when I asked him to come and preach the, the, the first time. And I'm thankful that I can go away and everything goes, goes well. And he wonders, well, why don't you just continue the series when you get back? Because it's not my study. This is our study. The church is going through Mark. And so there is a benefit to the consistency week after week of us continuing in the text together, whether, whether I'm here or not, um, the, the church does not rise and fall on my preaching, thank the Lord. Um, yeah, for my sake and for yours. Uh, but we're going to continue in Mark, so I want to jump right back in. And um, So last week, David focused on Jesus's work, air quotes, uh, um, on the cross. So we make a distinction between Jesus's active work or his active obedience and his passive obedience. When you do something actively, you are working towards something. You are, you are, you are moving, you are doing yourself. But then there's a, a, a passive work, a passive obedience, meaning something is being done to you. And so through Jesus' crucifixion and his death and his burial and his, and his ascension, his passive work, his passive obedience is the Father and the Spirit working upon him. And so Jesus, in his action and his inaction, shows us how to be obedient. And so these couple texts, these are, the, these are the, the climaxes of the gospel accounts. And this is at the heart of the gospel itself. This is, this is the gospel 101. This is what separates us from everyone else. And this is the central concept of our faith. And so what we're going to be talking about today, the death of Jesus, or uh, death in Christ, is the, the sermon title is this cannot be overstated. This cannot be overemphasized. And so we're really going to lean in here. So even though even in your Bibles, it, this section is noted the burial of Jesus, that's part of it. But if you look at the repetition, if you look at the focus, the focus is on the death of Jesus. And so um, before we get into uh, our text, I just want to remind you that we as Christians are weird people. We don't fear death, and we actually take comfort in it. And we take comfort in the fact that our Savior truly died. Because if he is indeed your Savior, then you should take comfort. Because if he didn't die, you're dead. And if he didn't die for you, you have no hope of life at all. And so, I want to recap the why these details are important, so I want to bring in a couple things from, from last week. First, this account is fulfilling of Psalm 22, a psalm of David where David himself went through a lot of difficulties, but uses language that could be used by someone on the cross. And so when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What we don't realize is in our Bibles, we have little handy uh, titles for chapters and for Psalms. Those weren't there in the Hebrew text. The title of the Psalm was the first line. So when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's saying Psalm 22. He's, he's quoting to them and he's bringing to their attention a Psalm, which they should know. 
So just by saying the first line, he's bringing to their attention everything else within the psalm. So the first line, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We looked at verse, verses 6 through 8. I'm a worm. I'm not a man. I'm scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All those who see me mock me. This happened. They make their mouths. They, they wag their heads. This happened. They even mock him, saying, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Also, we didn't get to these verses, but these are true as well. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust in you at my mother's breast. He was faithful from the beginning. This was fulfilled. Verse, 20, verse 16, the dogs encompassed me. Now, that was kind of a, a slang term for the oppressors of Israel. A company of evildoers encircles me. We, we knew that to be true from the, from the account. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They, divide, they divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. David did not know what he was saying when he spoke those words. He did not know how it would be fulfilled. But the Holy Spirit did and planned this out. And when Jesus quotes it, all these things are to come to mind. So when the person sees this or when a Jew reads this, Psalm 22 and all that imagery should be there. The other imagery that is very important for the, the Jew is right after he breathes his last breath. Back in verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. This is the first mention. He died. His last breath. His last breath as a human. His last breath. And then immediately after, what happens? And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And David did a great job of, of spending time on this. But that barrier between the Holy of Holies, between the very presence of God and what separates him from man is torn. But don't miss the detail. It is torn from top to bottom. Can't remember how tall it is, like a 40-foot curtain. There is no way you are tearing, no man is tearing a 40-foot curtain or any curtain from top to bottom. This shows that God himself, from top to bottom, this is torn. Only a divine act can remove the barrier between God and man. Only a divine act can give man communion with God. Only through a divine act can man have, can man step into the presence of God and not die. This is important for everything else that comes after. This is a sign to the Jews that the presence of God has opened. God, who came to dwell in his people in the tabernacle and then the company has now, or excuse me, and, and then the temple has, has now come to dwell in bodily form. And it is he who you crucified. But it is through him where you will be able to approach me. All that, that symbolism is built in there. And then we go on to this this kind of strange inclusion of one centurion. You've got myriads of, of, of passers-by. This is on a main road. Uh, the Hollands are not here this morning, but they've taken many trips to Israel. And so when I was talking about that being on a main road, he said, you know how much of a main road that is? There's a bus stop there now. So if you go to Israel on, on, on Golgotha, um, where Jesus was crucified, it is that much of a central hub that there's a bus stop. So in this, this time of everyone going by, um, the Roman soldiers... Uh, tortured him, led him up there, and then a centurion. One centurion is mentioned, but he's mentioned because he's important. Now, this is helpful for you to remember what does centurion mean. Same Latin root as our word for century. 
So he was in charge of 100 soldiers, just like we have 100 years. He was in charge of 100 soldiers. When Jesus was, was beaten, there was a cohort, 600 of them, six centuries, six uh, Roman centurions were there overseeing this. And probably uh, one, of those, one of those centurion would take his 100 soldiers and bring Jesus to the cross. And he's the one who's responsible for it. So that's what's going on with him. But he makes an amazing statement especially for a Roman, truly, this was the Son of God. This is the first admission to Jesus' deity by a person in the Gospel of Mark. The only other admissions come from angels and demons. He's the first person. This is also, coincidentally, the first Christian confession. So he is confessing with his mouth. He is saying a true theological statement about Jesus Christ. So just kind of a, a, a shameless plug, uh, men, this is what we're going to be studying this afternoon. Why is confession important? Why is it to have agreed words, theological, doctrinal statements that we stand together on and that we agree in? This being the very first one, and he's mentioned because this is a faithful confession. Um, and so this is also a great indicator that saving faith and understanding would come to not just Jews, but Gentiles as well. So uh, we need to have all, want to have all that in mind as we get into our text. And so if you notice your, your outline, there's, an, there's a perfect chiasm within our text. That's why I'm going to start in verse 40. Uh, David got a little rushed. He didn't get to get to those last two verses, so uh, I will. Um, but there's this, this great chiastic structure. So chiasm from the Greek letter uh, chi, it's just an X. So you've got the, the, the women on either end, and you've got Joseph of Arimathea, and then you've got Pilate in the middle. Um, we'll, we'll get into that, that structure a little bit more, but it's kind of a, a power structure from the powerless to the powerful, uh, all of them confirming his death. And we've got a nice little marking sandwich here. With, uh, we've, we've seen a few of these, but you've got the women, you've got the burial, and then you've got the women again. So that's where we are in our text. That's why we're starting in verse 40, and let's move through. So picking up in Mark 15, verse 40. There are also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger, and Joseph and Salome. Uh, Salome. And when he was in Gal Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there are also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he, had, that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, he wrapped him in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that, he, that had been cut out of the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, opening the very word that you have declared to us through your spirit, working through human messengers, that we may know you. 
that we may know you through your Son, that we may proclaim his excellencies, that we may proclaim his death. Our Savior died, and our Savior rose again, and our Savior ascended on high, seated at the right hand of glory, and our Savior is King of kings and Lord of lords, and our Savior is our high priest interceding for us, and our Savior is coming again. This is why we are a confessional people. We confess with our lips that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May you help us to be rooted in your word, to stand firm on the truth of the gospel. May we be bold in a world that hates us and confronts us, in a world that does not want to submit to you, that wants to be their own God. May we be patient and loving in our boldness. May we have an answer for the hope that is within us. May we be equipped according to your word. May your spirit bless our time together today. May he open eyes, open hearts, give us understanding, encourage those who are downtrodden, humble those who are arrogant, and bring to life those who are dead. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so let's pick up in verse 40. There are also women looking on from a distance, um, and he names names. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, uh, Salome, and um, many other women. This, again, is uncharacteristic for Mark. Mark doesn't often name names, but now we get to the climax, he starts naming more names. So, one, he wants to bring attention and recognize the faithful, but he is also doing an important work here, as all the gospel writers do, recognizing these, these women, the two Marys, in addition to Jesus' mother and the others. This is confirming the witnesses. This is solidifying in the mind of the reader that there are actually people here who we know with actual names, uh, and this is a solidified historical event. What's also of note here is that throughout the rest of Mark's gospel, the disciples are the focus. The focus is on Peter and his big mouth and the, the disciples and the lessons that, that James and John have to learn. But here, at the climax of the whole text, the women are front and center. We don't hear from the disciples anymore for the rest of the book. It is the women who are faithful at the foot of the cross when all the disciples scatter. It is the women who go first to the grave, to the tomb. It is the women who minister to Jesus. That is an interesting phrase. Verse 41, when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. You know, the only other characters in the book of Mark mentioned ministering to Jesus are the angels. It is the angels who ministered to Jesus when he was tempted in the wilderness. And these women are doing the job of angels. It is an amazing encouragement and, and stamp of approval and love on these, these women. And so the first thing I want you to see in this text from the very beginning, Christianity is, is, is giving value and giving dignity to women that didn't exist anywhere else in the ancient world. There is nowhere where women would be front and center or, or um, prominent characters in, in, any, in any story, let alone um, be put so close to God himself. This was, this was unthinkable. So before we go any further, and I'm going to get more into that uh, later on as we get into our, our section, sec, second section. 
But I want to encourage the, the, the women for a moment. So ladies, take heart. Because in our culture, people try to make you feel like you are, you, you are less. Like Christianity doesn't respect you. Or you can only have value if you do X, Y, and Z. The world doesn't want you to take courage because your, your role is different in the church and in, and in the home. These women are great reminders that even their, their culture wanted nothing to do with them. And they are remembered by our Father in heaven. They are seen of ministers, as ministers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you love and nurture and care as only you can, we are not capable of that. We are meaning men and I'm speaking for all of us. We need that love and nurture and, and encouragement that only women can bring. And when you do, it is a sweet offering. It is a pleasing aroma before the throne. And it is a beautiful thing. And you would rather hear, well done, good and faithful, lowly servant, than you would, you're, just, you're no different than any other man. God created you this way, and it's a good thing, and it's a beautiful thing, and, 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 and Christianity brings dignity to, to women that did not exist anywhere else, and really doesn't exist anywhere else. Because the world tells you that women only have dignity if, if you change who you are and change who God created you to be. How God created you is a beautiful thing, and don't let the world diminish that. Amen? Amen. Amen. You're welcome. Um, all right. So uh, let's jump into verse 42. So here we've got the, the women. This chiastic structure begins going on. Uh, just kind of giving you context. When evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath. So here's what you need to know, the day of preparation. Um, if you're not familiar with the Jewish, the Jewish calendar and the Jewish uh, timekeeping, remember the, the Jewish day started at sundown, or excuse me, sunup, sunrise, and uh, the Jewish day ended at sundown. So basically, their, their Sabbath, like we would think, okay, our, our Lord's day begins when I wake up on Sunday morning. But for them, their Sabbath began when the sun went down on Friday evening. And so the moment that the sun goes down, you can no longer do any work or you are breaking the Sabbath. So basically, we've got twilight. It's getting dark. Um, and it's the day of preparation. This particular Sabbath is a high holy day because it falls uh, on the, the, the feast of, of uh, Passover. And so now they realize the sun's coming down. If we do any work, even burying a body... It would be breaking the Sabbath. So here's where there's a, there's a bit of a time crunch for Joseph of Arimathea, and that's what Mark wants us to get. Um, so verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council. So what this means, when we spent a lot of time talking about the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was that, that council of 71 elders, uh, kind of representative of the, 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 the who's who, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the high priests, the elders, the scribes. He is a respected member, yet somehow not in agreement with the rest of them, and presumably not present at Jesus' trial. There is a sense, and maybe they, they knew where he stood. He didn't get invited. Uh, we, don't, we don't really know, but the first thing we want to see is he's a respected um, council member. And so, because Mark does not speak favorably about the, the rest of the Sanhedrin. The other thing that's unique about him is he was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. Now, the way this is written in the Greek, this is a, a continual looking. 
He is looking, he is waiting, he is searching. He himself, this is something that he wants to do, that he is, he is longing to do, and he keeps doing. He is marked by waiting for the, the kingdom of God as he should. The rest of the council was trying to build their own kingdom when was consumed with themselves. He was consumed with the things of God. This is what set Joseph of Arimathea apart. So there's a couple extra helpful details to kind of fill in here. So if you would turn to, um, to John 19 for me. And while you're, you're turning, the other thing that Mark mentions is he took courage. So this was a bold act. Not only as a Jew before Rome, but, probably, but more so as a Jew, as a member of the Sanhedrin to say, I am devoting myself, I am attaching myself to Jesus. I am taking courage and I'm going to take his body when the rest of the Sanhedrin, his, his cohorts in the Sanhedrin wanted nothing to do with Jesus. Not only that, they put him to death. So if you ever want to know the details of, this, of these days, uh, John has devoted half of his gospel to the last week of Jesus' life. All of 19 is, is dealing with it in much more detail what we've been covering in Mark. But I want to bring a couple more things to your attention. Um, we already looked at in verse 31, this being the day of preparation, the high, high Sabbath. Since the Jews um, didn't want the bodies there on the Sabbath, they asked Rome or Pilate to break their legs. Uh, Jesus was already dead, so his legs weren't broken. But I want to pick up here in verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, so it shows there's a correlation between him looking for the kingdom and being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. So uh, probably they, they didn't know where he stood, and so maybe he didn't get the, the, the midnight call to uh, go and give Jesus a trial. He asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also. Remember John chapter 3. He's the one who asked him. And it's where we get the first picture of being born again and being born of the Holy Spirit. And Nicodemus is confused. He earlier came to Jesus by night. But something must have sunk in because now he's coming to, to cast his lot in with Jesus and not the Sanhedrin. So um, he brings a mixture of myrrh and aloes and about 70 pound, 75 pounds in weight. Um, so this was a way you show respect to the body and um, to cut down on the, the stench. They would anoint the body and they would cover it. Uh, but this was the amount of, of uh, spices for a king. This is an exorbitant amount. And so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and, a, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So uh, they're kind of, they're doing everything according to custom, but they're scurrying, they're, they're moving quickly. And Joseph of Arimathea is taking forefront here. Now, this is something that he wants to do because of his devotion to Jesus. But as a faithful Jew, this is also something he's doing to make sure that the law is kept. This will be on your screen, but, er, but if you can turn there, Deuteronomy 21. This is important for us. So there was a law that if you kill someone, especially if you hang them on a tree, this was written before crucifixion was invented, you should not leave them there longer than the first day. So Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he, 
and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. Now, this is a prophetic act he's doing as well. Not only does he want to keep the law, that the body should not remain up there. The rest of the Jews had in mind, well, break their legs so that they don't remain up there. But he wants to make sure that he is buried the same day. But notice what is referenced here. A hanged man is cursed by God. Anyone else know Does that sound familiar anywhere else in in Scripture? Paul brings that up in Galatians 3. That'll be on your screen, but turn there. Now look how Paul makes the, the, the connection here. Jesus, by the nature of his death, is killed on a tree. It is a it is a cursed death. But even in his death, the law is not broken. Even in his death, the law is kept. Galatians 3 13. Christ redeemed us. From the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. And he goes on, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. His curse becomes our blessing. This is why his death is important. He must become a curse. He must take on our curse. He must put our curse to death. And then and only then can the blessing of Abraham, God's promise to Abraham, I will make you the father of many nations. I will give you uh, a land for your possession forever. Your, your, your seed will not die. Those promises of Abraham being the people of God in the place of God forever can only happen if the curse that was on them, that was given to them by Adam, is taken by someone else. And so in the same passage, the law was kept and Jesus being buried and our curse was placed on him so that the Gentiles might receive the blessing of Abraham. So a couple more details about Joseph of Arimathea before we move on. So um, he's a respected member of the council, looking for the kingdom of God, went to Pilate for the body. He took courage um, and uh, he asked to take the body. Symbolically here, Jesus commands his disciples in chapter 14, verse 22, this is my body, take and eat. He is the first to take Jesus' body. Just like Simon, who's named in the last chapter, is the first to take up his cross, capital H. So you have these, these men who take the cross of Christ, who take the body of Christ, these images that mark the Christian life. These are things we remind ourselves of all the time. We have men as examples You don't realize what it meant in that culture. If you were to take someone's body and lay him in their grave, he's touching a dead body, which makes him unclean. He's touching the dead body of someone who is confirmed, who is is sentenced to die, who is hated by his own people in the worst way possible. He's covered in the blood and bodily fluids of Jesus, and he wraps him up gently. He's associating himself with his body. When you associate yourself with Christ, you take all of him. You take the body that the world despised and mocked and beat and spit on. You take his, his, his blood onto you as you're, you're covering. He is associating himself with Jesus. And he's this, this beautiful picture of what it means to be a disciple. It means it's not going to be easy. But he knew that Jesus' burden is light and his yoke is easy. 
even if your status in the world is going to be threatened and turned upside down by associating yourself with Jesus. All right, um, let's continue. Oh, one more thing before we go on to our, our next section. Um, as I was thinking about this this week, uh, the other gospel writers describe Joseph of Arimathea as a rich man. And uh, that's an important detail because women in that society could not own property. They could not, they, they did not have a voice in any civil proceedings, uh, especially in, in the Jewish culture. So he has his own tomb. He has his own expensive linens, linens. But this passage is a glorious contrast between this powerful man and these powerless women. This, this rich man and these, and these poor women. This important man and these seemingly unimportant women. That the rich and the poor, male and female, affected by the gospel, give all they have to Christ. This beautiful picture of the responsibility of riches, and it's true, but the opportunity of poverty as well. They didn't have much to give, but in their devotion, they showed themselves to be ministers of Christ, both servants of the king. In the same passage, we see them equal, literally before the foot of the cross. And we see God glorified in both of their actions. So continuing with what I just said to a, mo a moment ago, ladies, this one's for all of us. The world wants us to be defined by our status. The world wants you to think you're only important if you're like Joseph. That you don't, you don't, you don't matter until you have this much power or this much influence or, or, or this much money. Waging war according to partiality. We live in times that are so accustomed to, to, to partiality. Everything that the world sees are these external markers. This is better than this. You've got the oppressors and the oppressive. Like we're so influenced by these, by these Marxist ideologies. But the Bible has nothing to do with that. In Christ, the women and the most powerful man in Israel and the most powerful man in all of, in all of Judea in the next verse, Pilate, are no, not, not, not Pilate, but these, the, the men and the women, uh, Joseph and, and, and the women, I got to get back on track here. I was on a soapbox for a minute. Um, but become equal and give, give great service to their king and are both given uh, encouragement from their father. Because in Christ, no matter where the Lord has you, with much or with little, you can serve and glorify him. Don't forget that. And even if you think you, you, you have nothing to offer, just by their devotion and, their, and their, their commitment, both of them glorified God. So now we're kind of moving up this, this, this power structure from the women to Joseph to Pilate in verse 44. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. Now, why was he surprised? Because... Now, that was uh, Jewish practice to not let someone die or, or, or die and then remain on the tree overnight. But Roman practice, because they wanted to put the fear of Rome into you, they would leave you on that cross for days. It was to be a slow, painful death. To send a message to everybody that, that walks by, you do not break the laws of Rome. They would leave them up there. Sometimes it would take them, them, them days uh, of, of agony before they would actually die. So he was surprised that someone would die the same day. Remember in John, 
They wanted the other thieves' legs to be broken so that the, so that the Jews wouldn't be guilty of, of breaking the law that was outside or being outside of Jerusalem. So he's surprised. He summons a centurion who we've already talked about. He asked him he was, whether he was already dead. Notice the emphasis here. Surprised that he died, whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, here's the emphasis. This is on... The, the burial section is mentioned in your Bibles, but the emphasis is that he's dead. And I'll get to why that's important. Uh, we've already alluded to it some, but we'll get to that more later on. Um, and so now we're back to Joseph again in verse 45. And when he had learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Now, this word corpse, just dead body. This is important. There were Hundreds of thousands of people crucified. You know how many survived crucifixion? Zero. There is not one recorded instance. There are thousands of recorded crucifixions, and we know that there are hundreds of thousands performed, not one survived. This is important because many early heresies, many current heresies, will claim some kind of swoon theory or that Jesus just fainted from the pain. And because he was under so much pain, it looked like he was dead, but he, was just, he just passed out and they, they, they put him in a tomb. You're not going to bury someone who's not dead. You can kind of tell that they're, they're not dead. If they're wrapping him up, they're going to see that his, his heart is not beating. Again, this is important um, for us as we, as we think about the nature of our faith. And that's where we're going to close. But I want you to get all of these, these details. Verse 46. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, he wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. So notice what Joseph does here, the great care taken for the body of Christ. He takes him down of his own money, his own linens, and um, Nicodemus's oils and, and, and spices is, is binding him up. And so he has this great care for the body of Christ. This, again, this is a messy job. And so what a great parallel. As he had concern for the body of Christ, so should we. This, the scriptures tell us, is the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. And it's a messy job. Because often, you will get blood on your hands. Figuratively, maybe sometimes literally. It is not all, uh, you know, rainbows and, and unicorns. But it is, it is a, a great thing to deal with the messiness of, of human life. And if you are binding people up and you are caring for them as if they are Christ, you are ministering to Christ as Joseph of Arimathea did in Jesus, with Jesus' body. This is what we do as the body. We get our hands dirty for the sake of Christ so that we can grow with one another. We can walk alongside one another. We can be patient with one another and loving to one another. So another beautiful picture in that. Um, another thing, this is down to the very last detail of Isaiah 53. We spent so much time in Isaiah 53. Every other detail we see fulfilled in the Passion Week and in, in, in Christ's death. But look at verse 9, the one that we have not looked at yet. And they made his grave with the wicked, so he dies next to um, sinners and with a rich man in his death, although he had done, done no violence, 
and there was no deceit in his mouth. Down to the very last detail, the suffering servant, Isaiah 52 and 53, is fulfilled in this very moment. But the other thing I want you to, to see here, Mark is very careful in his language. So in verse 45, he grants the, the dead body to Joseph. But look at what he uses in verse 46. And taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in the tomb that, was, that had been cut out of the rock. Don't miss, he actually died. He was actually put in a tomb. There was actually a, a rock that was rolled in front that no man on his own could move, but it's still him. We are not to see Jesus as dead. This is not his final state. We are not to forget the person of Christ. It is still him. Even in death, even in the moment where it seems like he failed, Mark still gives him full dignity. We're never to lose sight of his, his person. We're not to dwell on the corpse. Um, another detail that you may want to know or may not want to know, people have been trying to find the location of the tomb of Jesus since his death. Still today, every couple years, there's some kind of story. We think we found it. We think it's this one. We think it's this one. So many people try to hold on to vestiges and, and things that, that, that become idols. Rome has got many nails from the cross that they are making money off of and, and splinters from, from the cross. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where he was laid. It doesn't matter if we have the, 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 geo, the geographical location. It doesn't matter because that's not where he is. That's not his final resting place. And so for us, we need to know that he died, but it doesn't matter exactly where he died because we know where he is right now. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. So kind of coming to the end of, of, of this, this section, I want you to realize that there is a certain fact. He died, but we put a comma on it. Not a period. That is not the end of the story. And for us, if the Lord doesn't return first, we will all see death. Death is batting a thousand. No one is going to escape death. But if Christ died in your place, if he truly died, you have no reason to fear death. Um, all of 1 Corinthians 15 gets into this. But I'm only going to look at a couple verses because I want to encourage you in this. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 55 through 57, where Paul, after explaining the resurrection and what the resurrection means, that, you know, if Christ didn't, wasn't truly raised, we of all people should be, should be pitied. But if he is, if, if he died on our behalf and, and rose again, verse 55, O death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If Jesus died for you, you have victory because he went before you, and he died in your place. He took your sin on with him. This is to encourage the saints Death has no more victory. Death has no more sting. So I'm thinking, how can I illustrate this? Um, and so I'm not a very big video game guy. I think, in my opinion, they're a waste of time. But the last time I really played video games was probably Super Nintendo. 
And if you, a lot of you young guys don't know what that is, you will find it in, in, in a museum somewhere or like un, in uh, dust in someone's attic or maybe David's living room. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so, but if you're old enough to remember Super Nintendo, you remember cheat codes? Um, do, do you remember when, when, when you could find out how to get to a certain level or, or the best one was the unlimited lives? Do you remember how you played when you had one life left versus when you had unlimited lives? Unlimited lives, you were jumping off of buildings. You didn't, you, you didn't care what you did because you didn't fear death. But if you had one life left, if this was all there was, you held on to every little bit of it. You, you, you didn't want to miss that, that, that jump. You, know, you didn't want to be um, hit by that, by that fireball. You were, I only played like two games. So um, they're all, they're all going to be Mario references. Um, so... But if you only have one life, you are playing so cautiously and so fearfully. This is how the world operates. Wonder why the world's so scared? Why are people freaked out about every new thing that the, 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 the news and popular culture wants you to be worried about? Because they only have one life because that's all there is. Because if they die, the game is over. But Christians... We should live like we have unlimited lives. Now, I'm not saying do anything stupid like jump into the fire in Koopa's castle or anything. Um, but we should live like death doesn't matter because it doesn't. Because death is not final for us. It is, it, it is temporary. And we can, we can live like we are invincible until Christ takes us, as George Whitfield says. So be encouraged. We're not the ones with one life left. Jesus is our life. So there is no killing us. There, there, there is no death that can hold us. The sting is now gone. Amen? Amen. All right. Uh, verse 47, closing up this, um, our passage, and then we'll get into our application. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So here's the close of the sandwich. The women are there from the cross to the tomb. They are dedicated they're following close enough behind. And again, I mean, women were not brought near any of this, of this stuff, but they saw where he was. Notice, her dedica- notice their, their dedication. They weren't doing the job of men. They couldn't lift him up off the cross, but they, they had their eyes on him. And they follow him to the tomb. And this picture of redeeming what the woman in the garden did by trusting in the serpent. Now, these women in the garden putting their, their, their trust in Christ and their faithfulness in opposition to Eve's faithfulness. So next week, and we don't have time to get into this, but I want you to keep it in your mind this week and next, that witnesses of the death of Christ must, if you're a true witness, you must also be a witness of the resurrection. That's why the women start off the passage next week as well. If you are truly a witness to Christ, you must, you must be united to him in his death and in his resurrection. Um, Jonathan will do more of that next week. Um, one last thing here. Remember I told you I'd talk more about women in that, in that, that culture. Um, women were not treated very well in Jewish culture. Um, if you look at any of their, their, their videos, One for Israel does a really good job about calling the, the modern rabbis out on the Mishnah and the, and the Talmud's treatment of, of women. It is abhorrent. Um, there's even a, a prayer that Jews would have prayed then, and many still pray today. There's a litany of things that they thank God for. But they thank God with, for, for three things. Thank God that I'm not a pagan, a slave, or a woman. This is still a prayer that, that Jews pray today. 
Yes, there's some scrunched up faces here. Yeah, as, as you should. But if you are going to make up an account of the death and resurrection of your Savior, in that day, you would never use women. You would not think of using women as your witnesses. In, in Jewish culture, women couldn't even testify in court, let alone testify to a historic event. So this is radical in and of itself. Um, even in, in many of the, the early skeptics, like of the first few centuries of the church, when they heard these stories, they, they dismissed Jesus' death and resurrection as women's gossip, quote unquote. If your only witnesses are, are women, it, it can't be believed. How like our God to use the most unlikely that he receives the most glory. How like our God to shame the, the, the thing that the world calls wise and makes it foolish. That his wisdom may be exalted. And how like our God to bring dignity to image bearers who had lost it in their culture. All right, so I want to get to this application in, in death in our remaining few minutes. Um, so you may be wondering, um, and some of you who are theologically astute, you already know where I'm going. Listen anyway. But some of you may be wondering, why all the emphasis on Jesus' death? Why did Tim say it again and again? Why is it brought up again and again in, in the text? What is the obsession? Like, does it really matter? Does it really matter that Jesus actually died? What's the difference if he just, if he just fainted? Does it really matter that Jesus rose again? Do, like, does, does any of it really matter? Like, what, what, what happens if he doesn't, or if he isn't? And why defend it? Because this has been the battle of the church from day one. We need to state in our creeds, in our confessions, in, 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 in our doctrine, who Jesus is, what he did, that he died and then he rose again from the very beginning. Why is this so important? Because, again, I told you at the beginning, this is central to our faith. First, if Jesus did not die with your sin, you would die with your sin. But there's a, a um, principle, a biblical principle, uh, that's underneath that. We looked at this in Hebrews 9.22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Let's take a step back further. Why blood? Blood symbolizes life. And in order for there to be life, blood must be shed because blood also symbolizes death. In order, to, in order for us to eat, something has to die. In order for us to be nourished, a cow or a delicious pig has to lose their life so that, so that we would receive the, the, the benefit of their death. This is the same thing it, because you are covered or in, in yourself, you are covered in sin you must be covered with life. And so this is why the, the sacrificial system was important. Something had to die to remind you that you deserve to die so that you could take their lifeblood upon you. And because the blood of bulls and goats was not enough, you needed the blood of a spotless and perfect lamb, one that could truly save you not just from this day's or this year's sins, but from all of your sins. Like Jesus said, in order for a tree to live, the seed must die. It must fall to the ground. So in order for us to live, someone had to die in our place because that curse of Adam, when Eve listened to Satan and 
Adam as her, as her head did not stand in her place. We being in Adam, we are dead in him. If we're still under Adam, we're still under our sin. We need a new covenant head. We need a new covenant. And if Jesus did not really die with your sin, past, present, past, present, future, and to sin in general, bringing you into a new covenant, there is no hope. If you're going to memorize one verse on, on this ever, it's 2 Corinthians 5, 21. It'll be up on, on your screen. Brings all this together. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You can leave that up there. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is why the doctrine of imputation is so important. You didn't know I was going to get so theological in this message, but we need to. So imputation, taking on something that is foreign to you so that you may be transformed. He took on something that was foreign to him. He became a curse for us, taking on our sin. And we take on his righteousness, the very righteousness of God, what we call the great exchange in theology, that he took our sin, we take his righteousness. This is why he had to die, because you are so wicked and unlovable in your sin. It is impossible for God to love you with your sin still on you. And there is so much of it, just my sin. We don't, even, we don't have to mention you guys, just my sin would, would, would bury Jesus in deserving of death. But imagine all of our sins and all of the saints throughout all of history. It must be put to death once and forever. The two ordinances of the church have their focus on the death of Christ. We mentioned this in corporate prayer, but I want to bring it up again. Communion, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. Remember, death, the word death is shorthand for his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. The, um, the passive work of Christ. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, why do we do this regularly? Because it is a proclamation of the Lord's death. Not just his death, but his resurrection. It's a proclamation that he died so that we might live. Every time Jesus died, I live. Jesus died so that I might live. Jesus rose again so I might have new life in him. This is a proclamation. Jesus died and rose again for my sins. That is our, our, our first ordinance of the church. The second ordinance of the church, baptism, where we get the, the most detail of this. Now, for this, I want you to turn to Romans 6. So, I'm going to give you two remaining passages. You'll see them in your notes there, indicative and the imperative, uh, and we will close with those. So, the indicative, what we know, statements of fact. I want you to see how Paul uses the language of baptism, and what symbolism does he tie it to? So, we're bringing this all home. Why does it matter that Jesus died? He died for us. What does that mean for us? Here's what it means for the believer. Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 3. Here's the indicative. What we know. We know. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Notice the tense here. This is past tense. This is accomplished work. If you have died with Christ, you have been, if you have been baptized with him, you have died with him. This is already accomplished. If you are in Christ, you are as good as dead to your old self. Just like Jesus died for your sin, if you are in him, consider yourself dead to your old sin. 
we were buried, the grave language continued here, therefore with him by baptism. The word baptism not just means immersion, it's a naval word that means to capsize. Um, you, you, were, you were sunk as in a naval battle. You were dead, you were fully dead. There is no part of you that was not covered by your, your baptism. And this is not talking about water here. It's talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Baptism symbolizes what the Spirit does to you completely, unites you to Christ. We are buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Jesus' death means our death. Jesus' life means our life. This is why it's important. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him, again, accomplished action, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, death, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Think about this. If Christ had to die for our sin, how could we expect not to die to our sin? If Christ had to die for our sin, how could we expect not to die to our sin? He died that we might be holy and righteous. How many of us are still holding on to our old sins, forgetting what Christ has done for us? For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also. Don't miss that. If Christ died and he will never die again, death no longer has dominion over him. If you are in Christ, you also. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. He goes on later to say that sin no longer has dominion over you. This is the indicative. Christian, this is what you have in Christ. This is what you have in Christ's death and his resurrection. You can't separate the two, but he must die first so that you might die. So there's the indicative. And praise God for his grace. We've been saved by the grace of God because we know we do not deserve that. You don't know the gospel if you think that you deserve what Jesus did for you. But what do we do with it? Here's the indicative. What's the imperative? Now turn to Colossians 3, which we read earlier in our corporate reading. This is where I want to close. Colossians 3, pick up in verse 1. So notice, Paul used the same the, the same theme, the same picture to make a doctrinal statement, but also to make practical application, to give imperatives, to give exhortation and challenge to the church. Uh, Colossians 3.1, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Okay, so you die to the things of the earth Live to the things of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ. There's the reminder. There's the indicative again. When Christ, who is your life, appears, 
then you also will appear with him in glory. Remember that, Christian, because you need to put to death therefore. Therefore points to everything right before. You've died. Spiritually speaking, you died to your old self. But physically speaking, some of you are still trying to live in the flesh. So let me remind you, put to death therefore. If he brings this up, it's still happening. And as I read this, if you're not convicted, check your pulse. Because every one of us should be convicted by this list. Put to death, therefore, what is, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality. Put it to death. Now, many of you may think, well, I'm not sexually immoral. I don't have sex outside of my marriage. But the movies I watch, the music I listen to, the the, the people I listen to, the conversations I have. If you are sexually immoral in your mind and in your, your speech, you are sexually immoral in your actions. And we are, I am preaching to the choir here. We have to put this to death. Impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Every one of us is guilty of this. Man, I wish I had his job, or I wish I had her Instagram, or whatever you, you, you look after. Thinking that you will, you will have more, more value in someone else than, than in who God made you to be. Or, or what God has given you. Being discontent. Put it to death. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked. That's the dead person. Stop living like a zombie when you were living in them. But now, you must put them all away. Anger, all of us are guilty. Wrath, yep. Malice, slander, absolutely. Obscene talk, without question. Put it to death. Do not lie to one another. Christians think, oh, I've got all the rest of those covered. I don't, I, I don't lie. I've heard you. I've, I've, I've done it. Hey, hey do, you have, do you have plans tonight? Uh, yeah, I, I, I do. Um, I'll pray for you. That's the common Christian lie. And there are, there are many of those. We say things without even thinking them. Put that to death. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And we could, uh, we could go on there for a long time. But have you died with Christ? Are you daily putting these things to death? Do you recognize them and hate them in yourself? Because Christ hanging on the tree died with your, with, with your anger, your sexual immorality, your lies. Stop holding on to them. Stop trying to legitimize them. Stop trying to live as the old man. It's as, as, as foolish as a butterfly still trying to crawl along on its belly. You have been born again. You can fly. Stop writhing in the mud. Paul says this because we must hear this, but I don't want to end there. Verse 10. Because you've died, old man, and now you've put on the new self, new man, which is being renewed and the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is nor Jew, nor Greek, nor male, nor female, nor rich, nor poor, nor circumcised, nor uncircumcised, nor barbarian, nor, 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 barbarian, nor Scythian, nor slave-free, but Christ is all in all. Christ is all in all because he died and rose again. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you. We would never have put this plan together. 
But we praise you that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. We are unlovely, not a people, without mercy. He showed us love and mercy and made us his people. We praise you for this. We praise you for his death, that he went into the grave, and we praise you for his resurrection, that putting our sin to death and taking his very wrath upon himself that is justified, that we might be justified in him, him the just and the justifier. We praise you for his resurrection, that he lives anew, that we may live anew. We praise you for his ascension. He sits at the right hand of glory, that we may approach him and look upon his face and say, this truly is the Son of God. And he is coming again, and we await that day. But until then, let us live in the new self. Let us live in Christ. Let us put to death the thoughts of the flesh. And let us live in him. In Jesus' name, amen.